If no one sheds light on what is being done in the darkness, it will never stop. One in three girls and one in six boys are sexually abused and told to hush. Breaking the silence is the first step to healing. Healing is a lifelong journey. Find your voice. Your story matters. Pain put me into hiding. Purpose called me out. May the silence be broken. Thanks for listening to the One Voice Podcast. It's a safe place for conversation on relevant topics with real-life stories to encourage and inspire you along life's journey of healing from sexual abuse. I'm Mary O'Brien, and now Nicole Braddock-Bromley. It's so nice to be back together. We have a really great guest today. Her name is Erin Thomas, and she wrote a book that just came out a couple months ago. It's called A Force to Be Reckoned With. Regaining Direction After Sexual Assault. Welcome, Erin. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Wow. This uh, title is a strong one. I would love to just hear kind of what caused you to to use this title, A Force to Be Reckoned With. Right. Um, So actually, when I started writing what ended up being this book, it was not going to be a book. It was just kind of my own personal journal. And then it just kind of continued to morph all the way through and throughout the writing process. And, and still it was allowing me to heal. And uh, I was also volunteering at the time with an organ- local organization down here. Um, it just continued to give me more strength and it just continued to build and build and build. And then in a conversation with my best friend, um, you know, when all of a sudden it was placed on my heart for it to be a book, um, that's all of a sudden when the word a force to be reckoned with um, came to be. And um, actually my best friend was the one that was like, when I look at you and I see you, like sometimes that's what comes to my mind. And from her saying that, that then became the title of the book and, and kind of like the rally cry for it as well. That's really cool. I think that's such a a message these days, especially for survivors that, you know, it's just time to kind of remove the stigma that we've lived under for so long of weakness. Yeah. And, um, silence and, you know, everyone's kind of like, it's time to rise up, speak up against the stuff that's been going on for too long in the darkness, because together, especially our voices truly are a force to be reckoned with. And this is the time, the time is now for survivors to share their stories and um, to support one another in the hope of change for future generations. Exactly. Yeah. And and having that voice and people coming together to support each other. um, Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what definitely makes a lot more headway and, you know, it makes it easier to come forward when you actually see that there is a community of people out there that's willing to support you as well. Right. Well, I would, I would love and be honored if you would um, be able to share a little bit of your story um, as a survivor of sexual assault and um, kind of from there would love to impact just your process of, of, of sharing it um, even just amongst your friendships. What I really loved about your story is the importance of the female friendships in your life and how they have been so instrumental in you finding your voice, finding your freedom, finding your purpose. Um, But yeah, if you, if you would be willing to share a little of your story for those, um, I think storytelling and listening to other survivors helps us, all of our listeners to be able to connect and relate and know we're not alone. 
Uh, yeah, so for me, uh, my sexual assault actually occurred uh, toward the end of my sophomore year in college. Um, and I had my best friend from college at the time uh, was there. Um, she is still one of my best friends to this day. Um, so she was right there right after it happened, um, really gave me a lot of support. But at the time, it still was not at a point to kind of be able to talk about it, do anything with it. Um, you know, she made the suggestion then for me to, to go to the police and I just kind of shut everything down at the time. And it was just something that it never got discussed. Um, moving forward into college, I put a lot of safeguards in place and was very cautious and very aware um, because that individual was still around. Um, and then, you know, years later, I ended up meeting my husband. Um, he ended up finding out about um, what had happened. He was very supportive. Uh, but again, it was just something that I, I never, I never talked about. In my mind, it was, it was behind me. Um, I had, I had shut that door and I had moved on and it, it just, it was, it wasn't a thing that didn't affect me basically is what I thought. It didn't affect me. Um, but then after having my daughter and going through struggles with having uh, a child and several other things, it just brought a whole swarm of feelings that I never knew and never recognized. And then finally, um, my friend that I run with and one of my, and my best friend now, um, finally one day in the midst of dealing with so many different things, um, while we were actually, um, walking, um, on a nice day, um, I just all of a sudden just spilled my guts and that's kind of when everything started. And, and she was one of those just steadfast, strong people during the entire process. Um, and then as I had this grip trying to start to loosen a little bit more on me to my part of my fear was people viewing me only as my rape or, you know, having a different label, treating you differently. And what I did was I chose four other people that had been friends of mine for a long time. And yes, they were all females. And I kind of started I went to each of them individually and said, Hey, I have something I need to tell you and kind of started bringing that a little bit forward. And that's when things kind of changed. I started to see that they saw me still for me. They still love me for me. Nothing about our relationship, our friendship changed. Um, so I said, okay, like it's time to continue to break down more walls and truly find out how deep this has been running and how much this has been affecting me over the years. Mm. I'm wondering, as I'm hearing your story, I hear so many other survivor stories in your story that like, you know, you, you worry if I tell this is going to change our friendship completely, you know, this lie that that's going to be the only thing they see when they look at me. And, you know, you were able to kind of step through those fears and, and see that it wasn't that way. What was it that you would maybe give any of our listeners some advice as to how did you navigate those conversations? Was there something that you, you know, you kind of went slowly with it. Um, you started here and you, you were testing the waters. Did you, did you tell them how to respond? I have one of my friends um, told her parents how to respond when she disclosed to them. And I think that was very powerful. So I'm wondering how did you go about that? Um, it was a very slow process. It was a very deliberate process to where I was very cautious at who I chose. Um, when it was my best friend that, that day, it was not deliberate at all. It just kind of came out. Yeah. Um, but for the next four people, it was very deliberate. Okay. Um, and I remember I touched base with them and said something, I, I have something very important um, I'd like to talk to you about. And I tried to make sure that it was kind of a, it was a safe space. It was a safe time. We weren't going to be interrupted. 
um, and kind of had set the groundwork for it. Um, mm -hmm. I didn't really prep them on how they needed to respond or anything else. Um, the only thing I said when I sat down with the conversation, and it was actually kind of the same way I said it when I finally did tell my parents as well. Hey, I have something important to tell you. Please let me get through it all the way. And just if you have any questions, just wait through the end. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that was the key. And for me also, the key was I knew that it's my story. So I could tell as much detail as I wanted or hold back as much as I wanted, depending on how I was feeling at the time. Yeah. Um, I think that's, that's the key also for me thinking about any survivor is knowing you, it's, it's your story, but you can control how much you truly give away and how much you don't. Um, and there's power in knowing that as well. Yeah. It's a way of taking your control back. Yeah. yeah. That's great. I, I just love the picture of you, you know, very thoughtfully um, and carefully sharing with these people that you really trusted. And then in turn, their response was what you needed, right? For the majority, there was okay. one person that did have a response that wasn't quite what I expected, but okay. overall, um, still, that was kind of one of those pauses that when I've looked back and I'm like, I still think it was the right decision to come forward and, and tell that person. Um, and in hindsight, I thought maybe now, if that person ever encounters a similar situation in the future, maybe through knowing me and knowing about my history, maybe their response will be different if they encounter the same thing again. Mm. Um, hopefully they learn something as well from the situation. Yeah. And my thought of another way of, of bringing a positive out of it as well. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry that you had any negative responses. I think, you know, people play a role ignorant role a lot of times with the things that they say, or, um, a lot of times it's out of their own issues, right. That, that we respond inappropriately and cause we can't, we don't know how to handle it. Um, but I'm glad for the majority you, you did receive what you needed and you knew that wasn't your fault and that you were, um, believed. Yes. Supported as your friends walked through. And I, I do want to hear more about, you know, how, your one best friend specifically had played a role in just continuing to walk with you. But at this point, um, were you able to ever um, make any reports? Did the college um, know about it? How did that kind of go about? Right. Um, so I, at the end of my sophomore year, I never reported. Um, I came back my junior year. And um, because of my profession, we have certain clinical rotations we had to do at the time. And I found out that um, that other individual that I did not care to be around, um, that he was actually going to be working very close, um, for his clinical rotation to where I was. Mm -hmm. And I had just reported to my supervisor that if I was ever in a situation by myself and this individual came into it, that I was, uh, going to basically remove myself from that situation. And, um, she was fantastic. She said, no questions asked. And she said, okay. Um, and that's kind of how it went. Um, it was not until about a year and a half, um, after my assault that some other students that were undergrads, um, I think three or four of them came forward to a professor with some complaints of, um, like sexual harassment about that individual. And, um, somehow some of the staff members crossed paths and my former supervisor from that clinical rotation happened to be there. And, um, my name came up and she says, I don't know why, but we need to go talk to Erin. Um, she may know something. And they, they pulled me aside and, um, 
kind of questioned me about it, I kind of got a little upset because um, that was anything I wanted to deal with at the time, mm-hmm. uh, getting close to graduation and moving away and all that stuff. Um, but I did end up finally saying, yes, I'll go talk to, um, it was campus, uh, the campus lawyer is what it was. So I went and actually, um, my former clinical, uh, supervisor, um, she went with me as well, uh, while I went and told campus law what happened. And how did that process go for you? I'll be honest. I don't hear a lot of college judicial systems working well and, um, title nine has done a real mess, I would say for survivors in coming forward and it hasn't been very helpful. So I'm wondering how that process went for you. Right. Um, I was going to say in, in, in some ways the point was served uh, that individual was looking at trying to get uh, a job actually on campus. Um, so with my story and then the other folks um, complaints as well, um, he was not admitted to get that job. Um, so I felt good about that. He wasn't going to be in a position of power over other people um, to where he could manipulate them. Um, but other than that, there was never like a police report filed. Nothing else was ever done. Um, the response I felt like I kind of got um, from the campus lawyer um, was not the most positive. Uh, I'll be honest about that. It kind of fell into like we've talked about. It hasn't, it's not been well received, um, but I still got the outcome or we still got the outcome we were looking for to not let him be in that position. So I will still classify that in a positive manner. Mm-hmm. You know, Aaron, in your book, you, you mentioned, hold on, let me find this. you said that one question that came up in conversations. Now you were a college athlete, like both Mary and I were, um, for and in fact, I'm sorry, for a brief amount of time. Yes. Yes. And then you were an athletic trainer. Full-time, yes. Always around athletes. Yes. And I found it very interesting. In your book, you wrote one question that came up during a conversation, and I believe the athletic training office was, I wonder how many athletes have been raped. But instead of seeking external assistance, they processed it by themselves or with minimal help. You know, that's something I've thought about Mm -hmm. so much. I mean, as an NCAA speaker, Speaking to athletes, you know, you just know how, again, you just pull yourself up by the bootstraps and you keep it moving because you're an achiever, mm-hmm. right? Yes. And I found that that sentence, that, that comment, very interesting um, to see it put in words. Have you thought about that anymore? Have you come to any understanding yourself? Um, I think, I mean, yes, it came up in conversation with some fellow athletic trainers, um, and working around college athletics for a period of time, knowing several college athletes. Yes, it was part of what that brought that on is they had posed the question to me, do you think you being an athlete is what made you all of a sudden try to take control back over everything and just keep pushing forward? Cause it's that, Hey, we just had a loss last night, but guess what? That loss, that game, that game's behind us. Now we got to look to the next. And That's the next, it. Coming next. Yes. So I think, it. yeah, you try to, you try to, okay, now it's done. Now, how do I keep going forward? Um, and I think when I was ended up doing some, some research with the book and, and I saw like the prevalence um, of sexual assault in colleges, and then you take it a step further when they look into athletics and the numbers are even higher 
with athletics, it tied right back into that statement. And, you know, knowing that I worked with several um, college athletes where I was at for a period of time, I sat there and wondered when I looked at the statistics and I'm like, how many of my female athletes that I work with on a daily basis went through this? And when I look at the statistics, it had to be at least, you know, a handful and a half, I'd say, but they would never come forward to me. Um, and, and that just, it killed me. And I mean, I took care of them, you know, physically, um, and and many times they come and talk to you about everything else going on, like what's going on between their ears too mentally. Um, (laughs) but knowing they would have to be walking through that by themselves as well. And knowing now everything I went through and how that felt, um, it really, it did, it just got to me. And I think that's why that chapter ended up coming into the book, um, specifically because so many people are involved in, in athletics and almost that profession, that, that, um, professionistic, is that right? If not, Mary's going to have to edit that too. Um, (laughs) professionistic attitude, um, comes out, especially being an athlete. Yeah. Yeah. I really resonate with that. And just thinking about, you know, my athletic years of just, you just suck it up and you move on and you look to the next thing. Um, and then you, you don't want to be labeled either. No different stigmas going around and you don't want it to affect your playing time or your scholarship or all these other things um, that play. Right. Or, and God forbid your rapist is your coach. Yes. Or another athlete Uh that you have to see consistently that, you know, absolutely. So then, you know, I'm thinking about that, even with my own journey of, you know, giving myself compassion and, and space to look at the pain, um, time and compassion to unpack the trauma and how it affected me, you know, I think that's been some of the most important parts of my healing process has been the willingness to slow down and look and pay attention. And that is not what I was taught as an athlete, right? Um, Everything was a sprint. (laughs) Everything was looking to what's next. And um, yeah, so it's kind of like, I think probably training, athletic training could have given you a little bit more of an idea of like healing takes time yes. and you have to stop playing. Like I remember when I broke my hand, my senior year of college, like that felt like the end of the world. Cause I had to sit out five games mm-hmm. and it's like, and everyone was like, Nicole, it's minimum five. And it was like, I thought my life was over because of five games and people were like, well, if you want your hand to look ridiculous the rest of your life, I'm like, I don't care. Like this right now matters more than the rest of my life. You know what I mean? Cause you just don't think about the long haul, the long process um, until you have to. And I think that when I was finally able to really grasp that healing from sexual abuse is a lifelong journey that felt like grace. Like that felt like someone gave me, you know, like I could breathe better because it wasn't such a race anymore. And it's, and it's okay to sit and, and to walk and to crawl into baby step and, you know, all those things. So that's so interesting to me to compare it to athletics. Like that makes so much sense. Mm-hmm. 
So you're talking about like the coping. I think a lot was the control for you and, you know, the impact on relationships. Is there something that really stands out to you there that you felt like you've really gotten some healing from? In regards to relationships? Or just the coping, the aftermath. Yeah. I think for me, um, it's one specific relationship that definitely benefited um, and and with my coping is I had such anger that sometimes I didn't know where it would seed from. I mean, and um, I remember one one specific incident um, where I was just, I was so angry and we, like my husband and I were in our house and we were having this conversation and, and something just flipped my switch. And I remember I slammed the cabinet door so hard. Luckily, nothing happened to the cabinet, the cabinet door or anything else. But I remember standing there for a moment thinking like, what in the world just made me snap that hard? Um, and the anger, it was like there was something driving me and I couldn't figure out the what. And I think a lot of my relationships early on were affected by that anger that would just literally in a split second, everything would just flip like a switch. Um, that was really affected. Um, that fractured several things. Um But I think also with that, another relationship other than my relationship with my husband was my relationship with my parents because they never knew anything about it um, ever. Um, It was, you know, 13, 14 years after until I told them. And um, I think it confused them a lot as well to sometimes see my responses to know, like, who is this person? Because they didn't recognize who I was in moments and times because of those, those reactions, that anger. Um, and I think for me, that anger was just a huge key that just, that drove me and, um, did a lot of damage until I was able to kind of understand it better and start tearing it down and breaking it apart. Yeah. And do you feel like most of that came through, um, therapy, like counseling, you had a good counselor yes. that helped um, you look at that. Counseling helped a lot. Um, a lot of self-care. For me, you nailed it on the head even when we were talking about athletics. It was the learning to slow down. Mm-hmm. I had to have constant stimulus. Like in the car, the radio was always on. I was always pushing to add something else to my schedule. Mm-hmm. I didn't want quiet time. Yeah, because you didn't want to think. Right. right. And because yeah. that's when everything would come in. Um, I referenced like I had nightmares consistently. That was true. Um, I would try to do anything I could to get myself to shut down and go right to sleep to try to keep the nightmares away because I couldn't control the stimulus at nighttime. It would just, it would come after me. Um, so for me, learning mindfulness techniques and, and learning just to enjoy sometimes the simple things, like I learned to go for a walk, but go slowly, which was opposite for what I wanted to do Okay, to like look at leaves as they changed and the color patterns and, you know, or or watching my daughter play in the yard, dancing around in the sprinklers. It made me enjoy things that I had never noticed before that had been all around me the whole time because I never slowed down long enough to let that happen. Um, But yeah, so mindfulness and music was another huge key for me too. finding songs that I could relate to that I could play that would also give me encouragement um, as well. Um, at one time I used music to help me understand pain, but then I flipped the script and used it to try to help me with the healing as well. So I've told you a few times about this new project that I started many, many months ago and we just launched it. It's called Unleash. I personally think it's the perfect way to love yourself and nourish your healing journey in this new year. It's an eight-session e-course and a virtual support group 
for sexual abuse survivors like us. And I personally filmed hours and hours of brand new content. There's stories of over 20 of my dearest friends who will no doubt be relatable and really inspire you. Plus, we have this online platform where we meet virtually in these small confidential support group settings. It's kind of like a book club, but like a really precious one. And we just discussed the lifelong journey of healing from sexual abuse. And it's been so fun, so sweet, so meaningful. And I can't wait to continue to meet with these groups for the next eight weeks. And we just launched the next set of sessions. If anyone is interested, please sign up now at the website, IamOneVoice.org. There's a new set of groups starting in April. It's a great time to sign up. April is Sexual Abuse Awareness Month and no better time to care for your healing journey than now. And if you aren't interested in committing to the support groups, but you still want the new content, all the videos, and the new ebook, we have that option too. The healing road's long, but we don't have to walk it alone. Join us as we make 2021 a year to become Unleashed. Unleashed has officially launched. Grab your seat. Get signed up now at IamOneVoice.org. That's IamOneVoice.org. When I was in college and I was pushing everything away, but I would be feeling a lot of stuff. I would just go on a drive and play like, you know, the hardest core rap there is and like loud as possible and all of that. And it sounded crazy, but it made me feel better. <laughs> and then now, you know, as an, as a person who's received some more healing through some of those things and I can use my words now, um, I can see how like the music may have changed and, and the, the running away is a little bit different. It's more of a sitting still and being able to sit with your feelings, sit with your thoughts. Like that is such a sign of health, Mm -hmm. I think. Yeah. So going back to what you said about um, sharing with your parents, could you share a little bit with us about that process? Many survivors I know even now are considering this as a part of their their healing process. And I don't think it's appropriate for everyone to go through that step. But if you do feel that it's a part of like connecting the dots or um, helping your parents, even like you said, it helped them to understand, oh, now it makes sense why blah, blah, blah. You know, it was like, it was the connecting of the dots for them and for you. So yeah. Could you share with, with us a little of that process for you, how that went, how you made that decision? Yeah. Um, I was uh, in therapy. Um, I've been in working with my counselor for several months and I remember probably, I don't know, second, third or, or fourth visit. She brought up something with my parents and talked to my parents and I'm like, Oh no, we never have to worry about that. My parents will never find out. This is not a big deal. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, couple months later, I walked in and was like, I have to tell them. And she was like, okay. Um, <laughs> kind of caught her off guard there for a minute. Yeah. Um, she's like, what changed? And I just told her, I was like, I'm at the point of this is who I am. Um, so I need them to see me truly for who I am. Kind of, you know, take off the disguise, put down the shield and just, just be me. I'm still their daughter. I'm still who I am, but this is truly me. Um, so it was definitely something that I still kind of prepped for, um, yeah. very much so, um, cause I was nervous about going to talk to them. Yeah. Were you afraid um, they wouldn't believe you? Were you afraid they would blame you? Were you afraid they would feel guilty themselves? Like 
I think at the time, I I think I I thought that they were probably going to be upset that I did not tell them back when, Um, but at the same time, they had a lot going on in their life when that happened. Um, My dad is a pastor um, and still an active pastor in the church. Um, So I didn't want to come forward at that time because of the way people would probably label me and then put that off on him. Um, and then also at the time, my my mom was dealing with two elderly, with my elderly grandparents. Um, and that was a lot as well. So I didn't want to add to that at the time. But I knew they would probably be upset. I hadn't told them. Um, and at the same time, it was just, it was the, it was like the shame and the guilt that that stigma that goes along with it. Um, and, the, you know, the way that everybody will stereotype, well, what did you do to, you know, how, why didn't you keep yourself safe? Um, that kind of was in the background. Um, but I did prep to go tell them for probably about two months. And um, that day came. And and honestly, I wouldn't have told you that morning that was what was going to happen. But the planets kind of aligned correctly to where my husband was going to be able to pick up our daughter after school. Um, And I happened to call them and said, hey, are y'all home? I'm going to kind of come and visit. I got something I want to tell you. And um, I remember I showed up and um, they had the evening news on. And then... um, I ended up going down the hallway, um, like washed my hands, came back out to talk to them. And like, they had like one floor lamp on and that was it. And they were sitting there in silence. Um, so I I think I made them very nervous. Um, but I did, I kind of said the same thing, like, please let me tell you everything I need to tell you. And then, um, ask me questions at the end. Um, and, and that's kind of what I did. And I I used my daughter as kind of an exit strategy, um, to say, Hey, I want to, I want to get home to, to finish up putting her in bed. And, um, so that way it wasn't, I wasn't there much longer than I had to, had to be. And then I left, but they were supportive. Um, they both kind of asked me questions at the time. Um, and then later on, they came back and kind of asked me more questions about it a couple of weeks later as well, just good. as they I think digested more of it. Yeah. So. Yeah. Good. Good. And that felt, that felt like a good experience. Yeah, it was. Yeah. It felt like a good experience overall. I was, I was happy. The fact that they knew now, um, it was a good thing. Like I said, I think, I think I referenced in the book, like the elephant in the room, like, okay, it was finally, it finally yeah. explained, it made more sense. Um, yeah. And, and you would that, say it was worth it. Very much so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was challenging. It was difficult, but yes, it was definitely worth it. Yeah. You had, um, in the in your book, you have certain parts to the story, and in part two, you begin. You call it my shift, yes. and um, you start out immediately with something that I think is really important, and that is being able to label what happened to you. Um, I'm just going to read some of it. I think it's really good. You said, I've called it my demons. I've called it spinning. I've called it being out of control. I've called it sorting through my junk. I've referred to it as the event, but I never gave it its proper name until later when I was made aware of its true definition. I was raped. You said what I could not name for all those years, what had such hold on me and consumed my thoughts and everyday living finally had a name. Once I realized I'd been raped, the years of intense feelings that I couldn't seem to escape that seemed to overshadow the actual event that I kept telling myself that was not that bad or could have been worse made so much more sense. 
And you went on to actually define rape as this type of sexual assault that's defined as any unwanted or forced bodily penetration, no matter how slight, by another person's body part or an object. And you said, when I read that definition, my ears began ringing and the same burning pain I endured during the event came rushing back. <clears throat> and you said, I knew what was done to me was wrong. But I think that labeling the offense against us is so crucial to being able to move forward because we get so stuck with like the things that you said of, you know, it wasn't that bad or it could have been worse or, you know, I'm sure someone else went through something hard, you know, it's like all those things that keep us in the past. Um, So can you talk a little bit about that process for you of finally labeling it? How old were you? How old was I? Mm -hmm. Real quick then. Um, yeah, because was, this was years later. You didn't label yeah. it as rape no. for a while. Um, I was probably 33 or about to turn 33. Yeah. When yeah. I found out. So it was a solid 13 years later. I had a, yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah. I mean, cause even after going through and reporting it in college, like you still weren't. They never labeling. said that word. Yeah. They would not classify it as that. Wow. In college. But, but now you can, because you know what it was. Yes. Do you find freedom in that? Yes. Or do you, yeah, it's hard to, labels are hard. We don't want to label ourselves as this or that or that, but when you can put a word with this thing that hangs over you and causes so much crap in our lives, it's, it's nice to have a word. It's validating. Yes. It may. Yes. That, that, that's key. What I had been feeling, like I said, what I had been feeling to actually have a label to go with it, it made you feel not as crazy. It it almost kind of helped you balance the way you, you know, you felt like you've been walking like on a tilt for the last 13 years. And then when I found that out, I was like, Whoo, Mm -hmm. there's Mm -hmm. the balance I've been looking for to actually be able to name it. And there's power in being able to name it and then try to sort through it as well. Right. Right. And in the same coin, I think it's like on the other side, we look at the person, the rapist, the perpetrator, the person who sexually abuses, you know, they want it to be confusing. Mm-hmm. You know, you even wrote in the book about how um, abusers will camouflage what they did as either horseplay or humor, or they act like it didn't happen. And so those kinds of things cause their victims to even wonder what was it. Mm-hmm. So being able to actually label it brings so much, so much freedom and healing. And I'm glad that you, you included that in your story. Um, And then, you know, as you've continued to heal, you've really leaned on, you know, your friends and especially your best friend. Could you share just some of what was it about her that has helped you continue so healthy, you know? Yeah. Just a um, safe place to talk. I know you said she stays up with you, you know, late and listens. Like we all need somebody like that. Yeah. Uh, she was amazing. At the time um, we had a work schedule that actually really, that matched up really well um, when I was going through some of this. Um, so we were typically both driving back and forth to work um, every day at the same time. So we ended up chatting a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that helped. It was kind of a way that I could process things externally through talking with her and she was willing to listen. And I had been a sounding board for her on occasions for things that um, of course that we just, we just go through as we go through life together, basically. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think the best part is she was always 
willing to hear everything I had to say, even when she knew I was trying to sort through it, I was trying to piece it together, no matter how off the wall something may have sounded, she just, she rolled with it with me. Um, she never questioned it. She never doubted it. Um, she was there. Um, hmm. And she never, she never backed away. She never backed away. When I told her what happened, she never backed away. Sometimes when I would kind of have one of my frustrating spells, um, she was, she was consistent. And I think that was also key um, with that. And that was her way of, of showing love to her friend um, as well. And that was tremendously powerful. She didn't have to speak anything else, but just being there and knowing that she would pick up the phone um, and just let me kind of sort through everything and help me connect the dots. Um, that was the biggest help in the world. Um, and like I said, I think that was part of the reason that God had to wait for all the right pieces to be in place for me to start my healing journey. And I think part of that was having somebody like her there, um, in that role, um, to do that. So, and she was the reason eventually I ended up finally seeking a counselor after she started pushing harder and harder that she's like, you've done a lot on your own. Now you need more help. That's awesome. Wow. What a good friend. And for you to be able to hear that clearly she yeah. had, you know, really made an impact where that wasn't like offensive, like, Oh, you don't want to be here anymore. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like you trusted her and she probably assured you that she wasn't going anywhere. Yeah. That's great. What I also hear you saying is that uh, you were a friend of her too. And I think a lot of times survivors worry about pushing a friend away with all of their junk because it's like all about them. But I think if we focus on the fact that even though we have all of our junk and we are needy in our friendships, especially when we're going through the dark parts of our healing, we can still be a friend to somebody else. We can still make space. Um, and I think we need to, to understand that um, because we have felt, you know, the depths of pain and have gone through that. We have capacity to do that for other people. Um in the midst of theirs too. Mm -hmm. So to not worry about making a friendship so focused on ourselves that it's going to push somebody away, just make sure that we are intentional about also creating space for the other person to share. And it sounds like that's what you did. Um, I also love what you're saying too, Erin, about, you know, that she just listened, right. Um, there's this children's book that I love. It's called the rabbit listened. And, you know, it's about this little boy who builds this tower out of his toys or whatever, and it gets knocked over. And then all these little animals come up and like, try to tell him how they're going to help him feel better. You know, I can be mad and, and with you and I can do, I can go beat somebody else up and, or I can cry with you. Like they're telling him how they're going to sit with them. And he doesn't want any of it. He pushes them all away until like, he's just sitting there by himself crying. And then this rabbit just kind of nuzzles up next to him and just sits and doesn't say a word and just sits. And that rabbit made the, all the difference. And as he continued to realize the rabbit was just there to listen, he then did all the things that all the other animals were trying to get him to do, but he did it because that rabbit just listened, just sat, just stayed. And it's so powerful to just be a really good listener, to be someone who can love you through the messiness. And I love that you have a friend like that. And I'm sure you've been that way to her too. So that's a really great picture. Um, of healing, of what healing can look like. Um, I would love to hear just kind of as we're wrapping up our time together, your, 
your one chapter is called Faith Obstacle Course. And that is such a cool <laughs> uh, chapter title. Um, and honestly, a really good picture too, just what healing looks like when you do invite, you know, God into it. Uh, could you share a little bit of your faith obstacle course, what that looks like even today? Sure. Um, I touched on it a little bit earlier. I mean, I am a, I, I'm a pastor's kid, um, always growing up around the church. It was always kind of a safe place. I felt like, um, for me to be, um, as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were times when I started going through the, this, this healing journey, um, especially that there was a few people within my faith community that, um, ended up finding out that I was, um, a survivor and I did not get the, the best response from. And that was kind of one of those, those things that the church is supposed to be this welcoming place where everybody is welcomed, but you almost need an asterisk by that. And I'm, I'm tired of the asterisk being there. Um, and, and unfortunately, you know, that's where, you know, that's where we're also taught. Um, this is, this is where you go and you're going to find support and you're going to find love, but then sometimes you feel the opposite. And then I think at the same time, um, you can also feel that, that rush. Sometimes I feel like when you go to the church, you're like, okay, this happened. Great. Well, now you have to automatically turn around and forgive the person that hurts you. And then, yeah, let's go on to this picturesque moment. Yeah. It doesn't work that way. It is a nice it is a, it can be a slow process. Um, it's, it's the pace of the survivor, whatever pace they need to go to, to hit those points. Right. Um, not everybody's going to hit that. And I always got upset and kind of resented that as well. Um, I don't think you can't, you can't force anybody to forgiveness. Um, I, I, I even reference that in what I write. Um, so that made me upset. And I feel like part of what I wanted to do with the book and, and getting opportunities to interact with people is also educate even specifically like the faith community, um, you know, become more familiar with it and the resources in your area, but then also like how to respond and don't be pushing constantly for forgiveness. Um, it's going to be a process. So kind of like my friend, you got to be in it for the long haul of it. It's not going to be a, a two, three month and Hey, we're done. And, and now we move on to the next thing. Um, it's not like that. And I, I don't think we should tie our hands, um, in the faith community trying to put, labeling that or, or, or anything like that. Um, and I think it's something that we need to talk about. Um, the church is supposed to be an organization, like I said, that, that welcomes everyone, um, and has resources for everyone. Then we need to stand by that and, and truly live in that way. Um, and it not just be what makes you feel good or what fits in your box. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's gotta be a holistic, holistic approach to it, um, for everyone. So, that was what some of the whole faith-based obstacle course was um, as well in the book. Yeah. I like how you've been comparing it to, you know, your friendship because mm-hmm. your friend did not take on the role of your savior or your fixer, whereas the church shouldn't either. You know, the holistic approach is that this is, this is a lifelong journey and there's going to be a lot of places that resources can help you. Um, and the church is not, the end all <laughs> of that. It yeah. can help. It can definitely help along the way. But at yes. the same time, what I never want to see is the church hinder that because then again, yeah. I didn't want it to be that the negative response. Or then all of a sudden the way somebody responds to you, that survivor who was finally coming forward, finally starting the healing process, 
then goes, uh-uh, if this is how I'm going to have the response, if this is how I'm going to be responded to, sometimes they'll step back instead. Um, I don't want that to happen. And that's part of the education piece as well. Yeah, I completely agree where, you know, what the church should be is, you know, that what Jesus offers women, hurting women, abused women, labeled women, that's, that's what the church should be for all of us, especially survivors. And if we're met with, what doesn't look like that when we're met with judgment or a checklist of where we should be at this point, you know, can often be off putting and then a survivor doesn't want to try again in the same regards, you know, when we thought we could trust someone and then they used us, we don't think we can trust ever again. Um, So it takes a lot of, of just making that decision to keep trying. And it sounds like in your faith obstacle course, you've continued to try. You've, you've seen, you know, a dead end here or, you know, a mountain that wasn't worth climbing and you've been willing to turn your gaze and see, is there another way to get around this? Is there another way to go through this? And you found that. Mm-hmm. That's very courageous of you and um, inspiring. And so I'm real excited to let people know about your book, A Force to be Reckoned With by Aaron Thomas. Thank you so much for your time today, Aaron. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe, write a review if you heard something you liked, even invite others to listen so we can be on this healing journey together. You can check us out on Facebook or go to IamOneVoice.org.